Who then is the assembled body of Christ that is referred to as the New Jerusalem, the dwelling place of God, the Bride of the Lamb, who carry the presence of God in worshipful reverence, displaying the glory of God at the end of this millennial period. Who are they? It says it this way, and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. The nations of those who are saved. That's who. So all the nations of mankind, all the peoples of the earth who have lived, will not be saved, will not be part of it. They're not included in the nations of those who are saved. They will walk in the light of this city. Why? Because by now, what has happened to all the nations that rejected God? As we saw earlier from the 20th chapter, the very end of it, whose ever names were not written in the Lamb's book of life were cast into the lake of fire. That would include all the nations that rejected that great salvation. Indeed, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? That final expression of the wrath of God manifested in the orderliness of His judgment and in the firmness of the conclusion of the millennial age concluding as it does with the great white throne judgment and then what comes suddenly after that. Now, that has to be taken into account when we look at the next phrase, and the kings of the earth bring their honor or bring their glory and honor into it. The gates shall not be shut day or night, but by the way there is no night there. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of nations into it. So both kings will bring their glory into it and nations will bring their honor and glory into it. Two very important considerations. Obviously, this all operates, the definition of who the kings are, who the nations are, operates against the background that only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life are present in the city. So the idea that glorious kings, you know, conquering kings, one of the seven kings of Rome, Rome had kings at one time, one of the seven kings of Rome had a very um, modest name. His name was Tarquinius Superbus, which is the superb or magnificent Tarquin. That's not the honor and glory that kings will bring into, uh, into this great gathering 
at the final uh, submission of the kingdom to the Father. That's not the kind of honor and glory. Um, another king was called Charlemagne, which is a modest statement, Charles the Magnificent, or in French, because he was a French king, Charles Magny, Charles the Magnificent. It's not talking about that kind of um, acquired um, lordship or magnificence. Magnificence, honor, glory of kings in the kingdom as in this manifestation of the kingdom is much more centrally connected to the person of Christ. Now begin with this truth. We, we, the body of Christ, we are a royal priesthood and a holy nation, an administration of kings and priests. What we don't know is what will God do with this collection of royal priests? What will he do with them in the age that now dawns here? But the principle of the use of kings and priests and the principle of the glory of kings and priests is well established in Scripture. In a certain parable, Jesus speaks of the fact that Jesus speaks to this issue parabolically by talking about um, certain ones receiving the rule of ten cities. When it, a, a different framing of the same parable was uh, a man leaving and going on a journey, calling his servants together and committing his goods, committing his wealth into their hands for administration. And he gave to, to a certain one five uh, talents or measurements or or quantities of money. To another he gave two, and to another he gave one, according to their several abilities. And he took his journey. When he returned, the servants rightfully came to give an account. The one who had received five talents came joyfully to his master and said, Lord, you entrusted to me five talents, behold I have made five others beside. And the Lord said, well done good and faithful servant, you have been faithful with a little, I will make you ruler over many things, enter into the joys of your Lord. And 
the one with two, and likewise he had made two, was similarly rewarded. But the one who had one came with an excuse, and he talked about the Lord, he accused the Lord of being a thief, essentially, reaping where you haven't sown, gathering where you haven't stored, and so on. And he said, here is the money you gave me. I, I buried it and I'm returning it to you as is, as, as, as it was when you gave it to me. The Lord said, bind him hand and foot, put him into outer darkness. There'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It is in the manner of being assigned a portion with the unbeliever that he's put into outer darkness. The millennium will see the rule of certain ones who in this life were faithful with the measure of what was given to them. In another reading of the same uh, parable, instead of talents, it was that they were given cities to rule, cities. The one who had done well was given ten cities over which to have dominion and rule. There will be from the millennium a recognition of first an assignment of both rank and responsibility. In this life, in the kingdom, in this life, we have both rank and responsibility. It is a mistake to think of the kingdom of God presently as a democracy. I hear people telling me all the time, well, I can hear God too. And listen, I believe that. In fact, I labor to help people to hear God and to hear God for themselves. But to say that because we can all hear God, that we all have the same rank, is to suggest that God tells us all the same things. That is nonsense. Paul put it this way. He said to the Gentiles in Ephesians, Undoubtedly, you have heard of the grace that was given to me for you Gentiles. And he spoke of this grace being given to him from his mother's womb. We're all here to represent some aspect of the nature and character of God and we are clothed with the appropriate gifts and ranks of authority that go with the calling. Now, if you have, if much is required of you, then, if, or rather if you have much, much, if you have much over which to rule, then much will be required of you. Everything in the way of discipline 
training, preparedness, and so on. Now, when Jesus was 12 years old, we see him in the temple. And after that, he disappears for 18 years. That is, there is no record of what he did for 18 years. But then he comes back on the scene, coming to John in, in Jordan to be baptized. And when he's baptized, the Holy Spirit descends on him as he comes up out of the water. And God says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. For 18 years we don't know what he went through so that God could refer to him at the age of 30 upon his presentation as the beloved Son in whom he's well pleased. Except that a few things were said, such as, he learned obedience by the things he suffered. He grew in favor with God and man, and his sufferings had the characteristic of loud cries. So they were real sufferings. The preparation of Jesus for his ministry took 18 years all of his adult life, beginning with the age of 12. And when he's finally presented, God says to us that he's the beloved son in whom he's well pleased, whom God is well pleased. And then he's taken into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That is to show us, by reason of his responses, how and why he was designated as the beloved son. His responses show us the extraordinary rank and grace that he carried. For example, he said to Satan, who said, fall down and worship me and I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. He said to Satan, you will fall down and worship me. Thirty-year-old man speaking to the demon, the chief of the demons, telling him, I am the Lord your God, you will worship me. Anyone who has ever had any encounters with the demonic know that the first thing they do is they shake you down to see if you know who you are. An encounter with Satan would represent, as Jesus' encounter with Satan would represent, a fierce confrontation of word. It's a battle of words. And Jesus could not be dislodged because he knew his rank but more importantly, he knew who he was. If you are the Son of God, that was not intimidating to Jesus even slightly. So what does it mean kings will bring their honor and their glory 
into the kingdom. Well, clearly we're not talking about kings of the world, kings among mankind, not unless they also became believers and and they dedicated themselves to the purposes of God in their administrations. Perhaps King David might be such an earthly king in a nation and perhaps King Solomon might be similarly and maybe even Josiah. But we know certain ones who have been referenced as high and exalted in that way. People like Noah, people like Daniel, people like Job, and in the New Testament the likes of the Apostle Paul would lead the list in my estimation and the Apostle Peter. We know that there are twelve Apostles of the Lamb whose honour is written down, inscribed upon the twelve foundations. So we have examples of who are kings who, uh, who bring honour into it, into this uh, glorious uh, gathering of all that is worthwhile from God's viewpoint on the earth. But it is not limited to them, to the glorious ones whose names and whose examples are shining lights like guideposts on this journey, luminaries among the great cloud of witnesses. Part of what I want to say here is there is rank, there's rank in in the order of kings and priests and it would appear to me that that rank is recognized even in this final configuration. Does having rank diminish the value of anyone who doesn't? The answer is no because the Maker decided who would carry His glory, who would carry His presence, in what capacity. And always, always rank came, higher rank, and the highest ranks came with extreme sacrifice. Paul was murdered, Peter was murdered, many of the early disciples were murdered. In this life, the main thing you do in this life is you give up what you would have done to take on His representation in your flesh. He makes these assignments. We we do not get to choose what rank we have. We get to decide if we're going to be faithful with the rank He did give us. In the course of my life, I am certainly convinced, having met any number of people, that God called many 
called them to greater rank, endowed them with great gifts and magnificent callings, and many elected not to remain in the callings with which they were called, and to empower many elected also to empower their gifts by their own strengths, and would not submit to being emptied out of their power and authority, so they may be filled up with the power, authority and presence of the Holy Spirit. I had a man tell me one time, he was one of the ones I, I walked with, he said to me, I think God passed over me. He was saying it to, to, to maybe argue that, um, or maybe convince himself that God had no further use for him because he ended up in, in a condition of turbulence in his domestic affairs, to put it, I have to be careful when I use examples to sufficiently conceal in the language I use sufficiently conceal the identity of persons. Um, and I'm doing that here and now. I could say more about his domestic disturbances, but uh, more would likely identify. Uh, and the point is never to ridicule anyone or to embarrass or make anyone ashamed or make, put a stumbling block in their way to come back and return because the scriptures say, many will fall and be refined. What God uses us for in the advancement of the kingdom requires an emptying out of our ambitions, our aspirations, our accomplishments, and to come to rely exclusively on the leading of the Holy Spirit. When you follow through with that, when you follow through with that, and you're faithful, your faithfulness is judged by that, then you're given the honor and the rank of your calling. Ten cities, five talents, ten talents and so on. Because there's order in the arrangement of the house of God, there is of necessity rank. These gates of the city are, in my estimation, these twelve gates are set as gates and defined as pearls because they're precious. This represents honor, this represents rank. I don't think that these have any reference to portals of entrance as they do guardians of the house of God, people who manifested 
the highest ideal in being like God the Father and because of whom many were brought to the knowledge of Christ and are described in the language of they are like stars in the heavens forever. In short, the way that stars light up the night sky and against the darkness of space, the inky blackness of space, they shine like lights. That's the comparison to those who bring others to the Lord and those who help establish others in the things of God. They are like stars. Those are the real stars, not the Hollywood version of stars. The real stars are those who shine forever. They, in a nation of kings and priests, they are referred to as kings who bring glory and honor into it. Instead of kings bringing glory and honor to make this representation of the kingdom of God in its final uh, iteration to make it glorious, instead of them contributing to the glory of God, the glory of God needs no contribution. They are reflected in the glory of the ideals that God honors and that God values. In short, by God's own approval, by God's own uh, testimony, attestation, they are persons of the greatest honor. Now the other thing is nations will also bring glory and honor into the kingdom. I am satisfied that in this, that God has deposited aspects of His character not only in individuals, but He has deposited aspects of His character and those aspects of His character are carried uniquely among nations, among certain nations. And the people who come out of these nations will possess the characteristics that God deposited in those nations, they will possess the shining examples of that characteristic of God that God put among the nations, they'll manifest that and that grouping that comes out of that nation will be known in this final configuration, they will be known for those ideals. Just examples, the characteristic of the Irish people is that they are prophetic people. Uh, One of the great Irish poets, W. B. Yeats, uh, and one of my favorite poems is that poem by W. B. Yeats called The Second Coming magnificent uh, poem of prophecy. 
the Irish tend to have that prophetic character of questioning. No, why wouldn't it be so? Well, why couldn't it be so? Why shouldn't it be so? They learn from the long years of being ill-treated by the British. They learn how to say what they're thinking by questions. And it is in the nature of the prophetic to plunder the heavens for insight into the nature of God. Now, is that the only thing that the Irish have? No, but there's a concentration of the grace of the prophetic amongst the Irish. So those who come into the kingdom from from this people group, one of the things they will bring is the glory of God in the spirit of inquiry and with it perhaps the spirit of freedom. I've spent a lot of time in South Africa and uh, I can tell you this about all South Africans. They are a people, and, and I don't know the extent to which this is true throughout Africa, but South Africans as a, as a nation of people are the most hospitable people. Sometimes the level of their hospitality in receiving me is nearly an embarrassment to me compared to other nations uh, among among whom I have been and among whom I have laboured. But they are the most hospitable people, South Africans. We will learn about the kindness of God, the hospitable nature of God uh, in the glory that they bring into this final uh, configuration because all the, all the people groups in this configuration, I am convinced, will become increasingly excellent to the point where their representations of the characteristics of God will be pristine and indistinguishable, indistinguishable from God Himself. The Arabs, they are probably the the fiercest worshippers of God on the planet. When those believers, when, when, when that contingent of believers that have come out of uh, the Arabic peoples, when they come in, they will bring such a glorious sense of the worship of God and they'll adorn the city with that, which means that the way we carry the presence of God at that time forward and, and forward will be so ridiculously worshipful that the fear of the Lord will be defined as this radical abandonment of any self-conceit 
and the pledging of ourselves to the glory of God. So much so that we would be a delight for God Himself to use. It would be the pleasure of God to entrust Himself to such a people. When the last remnant of people come in, they'll be Jewish and they will bring with them an exactness, an exactness that was nurtured through their submission to the law. So much so, and it would not be that exactness is why we uh, approved, no. It'd be the love for the ways of God, a love for the ways of God which cannot be improved upon. And they will, they will bring to the rest of the city, the rest of this divine company, such a love, such a devotion to what then has been revealed as the reason why God says and does anything. We will learn together the exactness of walking with God and so on. I don't have time to go through the nations, just a sample of nations bringing their honor into this glorious final uh, offering to God by the Lord Jesus Christ of His body for the habitation of God. What God means to do with that has not been revealed, or at least not to me and not at this time. However, the housing, the dwelling place of God will be so perfectly suitable to God out of which for Him to operate that in the coming ages, God will speak out of this assembled people as one who sits upon the throne of His dwelling, in the midst of His dwelling, and gives command and direction to that which exists to serve Him flawlessly. That is what God is producing and what we're seeing here as the picture of it at the very end of the 21st chapter. We'll go on to the 22nd in the next series of recordings. I'm Sam Solon and I'll plan to see you then. Bye for now.